0: When we look at this chapter of Galatians, we want to remember that as we approach a book of the New Testament, we want to remember the purpose for which it was written. And this epistle was written by the Apostle Paul to reclaim churches in what we would call Turkey today who had departed from the gospel he had preached to them when they were first converted because they had been seduced by Jewish legalists coming out of Jerusalem that were teaching they had to add circumcision and the law of Moses to the work of Christ in order to be saved. And so Paul, from a distance, writes this epistle to try to reclaim these churches who had been lost for the time being from the truth of the gospel. Their salvation wasn't in jeopardy, but their knowledge of their salvation was in jeopardy. Their assurance and confidence of how they were saved had been lost, because they had listened to these jewish teachers you know if you're you're open to chapter 3 you should be able to see chapter 4 clearly enough look at what the apostle says in verse 19 my little children galatians 4:19 my little children of whom i travail in birth again until christ be formed in you now he had formed christ in them once before But they had added the works of the law and circumcision to their knowledge of Christ, which made Jesus Christ of none effect. If you add anything to the cross, you destroy the cross. Because the cross saves by itself. Jesus said it is finished. We are told by the apostles shortly after that, neither is there salvation in any other. but the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. He is the means by which the new covenant is put into force. Not by anything we do. These people needed to be reconverted. So as we go through Galatians 3, the second half, we want to remember the original intent of the words. We're also going to learn that we as Gentiles have wonderful privileges in Abraham through Jesus Christ. We're also going to learn why there even was the law of Moses. We're also going to learn what we need to do and what we ought to do to identify with Jesus Christ. All in these verses. And let's begin at verse 16. Galatians chapter 3 and verse 16. Let's follow the Bible order for preaching. Read the Word of God distinctly and give the sense and cause the people to understand the reading. Galatians 3.16 Now to Abraham... And his seed were the promises made. He saith not, and to seeds, as of many, but as of one, and to thy seed, which is Christ. This is a profound, most important verse. A most important, not the most important, but a, a most important verse of the New Testament. This verse can deliver us from so many errors about the role of Abraham and the Jews and Israel and Jerusalem by showing us that the true fulfillment of the promises made to Abraham were in Jesus Christ and are for the elect in Jesus Christ. This is the Apostle Paul putting New Testament spectacles on our eyes so that we can then look at the Old Testament and understand it the way God intended it to be understood. The seminary-trained theologians of Paul's day had a different set of spectacles. And the spectacles they used on their eyes are the same spectacles used in most churches today. It is looking at the Old Testament and taking all the promises and statements there literally and applying them to a race of people, a nation on earth, and a city that was the capital of that nation. And so we have coming from most Baptist pulpits today that those people in the Middle East are the people of God, that the city there is the city of God, and that Jesus Christ is coming back to take possession of that land and of that city and of those people. But Paul here is telling us that the promises were made to Abraham and his seed in a way that it meant Jesus Christ and all those in him. Now, when we have the singular seed defined here as Jesus Christ, at the same time, we're to remember that it includes all those in Jesus Christ. Because look at verse 7 that we've already passed over. Galatians 3, 7. Know ye therefore that they which are of faith, the same are the children of Abraham. Amen. There's a plural, the they. There's a plural, the word children. Children. They are the children of Abraham. So when we come back to the latter part of chapter 3, we see in verse 29, And if ye be Christ, then are ye Abraham's seed. When the Bible says, and if ye, that's a plural pronoun, if ye be Christ, then are ye, a plural pronoun, Abraham's singular seed, and heirs, plural, according to the promise. The promise in Galatians 3.16 The promises in Galatians 3.16 are to God's elect through Jesus Christ. And we gather that from verses 7, 16, and 29. They are not to national descendants. They are not to the Jews separate from the Gentiles. They are not to Isaac's descendants separate from Ishmael's descendants. They are not to Jacob's descendants separate from Esau's descendants. They are to Jesus Christ. And his seed, his people, his children, which are the elect of God, who have laid hold of Christ by faith and baptism, as we're about to see. Now to Abraham and his seed were the promises made. The promises in the Old Testament, and there's 12 of them, from Genesis chapter 12 verse 7 to Genesis chapter 24 and verse 7. And there's a bunch of duplication, because the Lord repeated His promises to Abraham over and over. He promised to give him a land for an everlasting possession. He promised to give him an innumerable seed. He promised to destroy his enemies so that they could take possession of their enemies' gates. And he promised blessing to all the nations of earth. Now when we go look at those promises... We have to go with the spectacles of the Apostle Paul by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. We do not go there with the instruction of John Hagee. We do not go there with Jerry Falwell's eyesight. We go there with Paul's instruction. And Paul is telling us that those promises to Abraham are to be realized chiefly through Jesus Christ and they are for those that are in Jesus Christ. And that entirely changes your view of the Old Testament, the New Testament, what's coming. You know, misinterpreting this verse, you exalt Zionism. And so in 1948, when a Jewish state was set up in the Middle East, ignorant Christians got excited thinking Bible prophecy was being fulfilled. But Bible prophecy wasn't being fulfilled. The nation that counts in the sight of God is a holy nation made up of Jews and Gentiles, saved by the Lord Jesus Christ. The city that counts is not the city that was once divided and has a weeping wall in it. The city in heaven doesn't have a weeping wall. It has a praising wall. Because everyone there is praising God for salvation through Jesus Christ. It is because people do not know Galatians 3.16 that we subsidize that little anti-Christian state in the Middle East Believing we're doing the will of God as a people. And if they would have understood Galatians 3.16, we would have been saved from such foolish public policy. The promises were made to Abraham and his seed. Now I'm going to tell you right now that the word seed in the Bible can be singular or plural. There is no such word in the Bible except for right here called seeds. Unless the Bible is talking about seeds that you plant in the ground. The word seed here is including all of the elect along with Jesus Christ. And I already explained that to you from verse 7 and verses 28 and 29. Because verse 28 tells us that even though some are Jews and some are Gentiles, they are all one in Christ Jesus. And that makes that singular. The Jews wanted to divide up the human family into more than one seed, didn't they? They wanted the Jews to be a seed and the Gentiles to be a seed. But Paul is going to take that foolish notion of theirs and crush it with Galatians 3.16 that there's only one. And the Jews and Gentiles are one seed in Jesus Christ as verse 28 tells us. Even though the word seeds is used nowhere in the Bible and even though seed can mean a singular or plural, Paul makes an argument from the fact that every promise given to Abraham was to his seed in a singular form Because we are to understand from a New Testament perspective that that is to Jesus Christ and all those that are in Him. This is an interruption to his line of reasoning. Verses 15 and 17 go together. He is just giving us a point to tell the Gentiles again, he already told them in verse 7, that the promises of the Old Testament are for them because they are the one seed in Jesus Christ. This is so precious. Here is where the errors start to take place. God told Abraham, Abraham, go outside. Look north. Look south. Look east. Look west. I am going to give you and your seed all this land forever. If I have on John Hagee's spectacles or Jerry Falwell's spectacles, or the spectacles of Bob Jones University. I'm a literalist, like the Jews were, and I look at those words and say he was talking about a specific piece of land that can be measured on a compass from a starting point of Abraham standing in the land of Canaan. And they think they have a pretty strong position. But that strong position is being a literalist, a naturalist, a carnal thinker with spiritual words. This is a spiritual book, and it is fulfilled spiritually. And it's not that we believe in replacement theology, as they accuse us. We believe in Pauline theology. They say that we've replaced the nation of Israel with the church of Jesus Christ, but that's what Paul told us to do by this text. We never want to forget Galatians 3.16. The promises to Abraham and his seed are fulfilled spiritually in Jesus Christ. Think with me for a minute. I'm not having you turn. I'm hoping that you know these verses. God said, you've just looked north, south, east, and west. All that land that you see, I'm going to give to you, thee, and thy seed forever. Now, I'm making a claim here that the promises made to Abraham and his seed were spiritual and they were fulfilled in Jesus Christ. Let's follow the one of the land. The land should be the hardest one to find fulfillment of all because land sure does sound like it's real dirt over there in the Middle East. Land should be the hardest. But let's think about it for a minute. God said, Abraham, I'm going to give it to you. When we get to Acts chapter 7 and our brother Stephen is defending his doctrine against the Jews in that lengthy sermon of Acts chapter 7, do you know what he says? How much land did Abraham ever get? How much? Not enough to put the sole of his foot on. He didn't have a square foot of land in the Middle East, and yet God said to you, I will give this land. We had read this morning to us by our brother Bob, Hebrews 11, verses 8-16, through that tells us Abraham, when he looked north, south, east, and west... When Abraham did that, he knew that that was only a type or a figure of the real promise God was giving him. Abraham was looking for a heavenly country. Abraham was looking for a city that hath foundations, whose builder and maker is God. It says they didn't receive the promises. It says that. Do you remember having it read to you this morning? They didn't receive the promises as understood by Jews. But they did when they went to heaven, which is why heaven is called Abraham's bosom. It was fulfilled spiritually by what Jesus Christ secured for Abraham. Why in the world would a man get excited about a piece of sand on the edge of the Mediterranean Sea? This brother down here that I just referred to, Brother Bob, and I were talking this morning. Why would you want that ugly, ugly place on earth? Why not take heaven? Abraham understood that. And we gather this by looking at Galatians 3.16 and viewing the Old Testament promises to Abraham by the light of this verse. The Bible is full of progressive revelation. In Genesis, hardly anything was revealed. David and the prophets revealed more. But I want to tell you the scales were lifted off when we got to the New Testament. We're about to learn in a few verses that the Old Testament was just a schoolmaster trying to get us out of kindergarten to appreciate the things of the New Testament. The real light bursts on in the New Testament. That's why we read in 2 Timothy chapter 1 and verse 10, But now our salvation is made manifest by the appearing of our Savior Jesus Christ, who hath abolished death and hath brought life and immortality to light. For the first time, it's visibly apparent to us if we'll follow it. You are a select few blessed by the God of heaven to understand the promises to Abraham. Most of the Christian world in America is still following the Jewish fable that those promises were to be fulfilled literally with what we now call Canaan or Palestine or Israel in the Middle East, that it was to be fulfilled by nations of the earth being blessed on how they treated physical Jews when the true blessing... Of all the nations of the earth was justification by Jesus Christ because verse 8 already told us that. When God told Abraham, in thee shall all nations of the earth be blessed, that wasn't based on how he was gonna, how the, those nations would treat physical Jews. That blessing was salvation by the free grace of God and justification laid hold of by faith. So we read Hebrews 11 about Abraham and heaven. We read Acts chapter 7. Stephen saying Abraham never had enough ground to put the sole of his foot on. We go back to Genesis 12 and God said, Abraham, I'm going to give all this land to you forever. And we say, how do we reconcile those statements? We reconcile them with Galatians 3.16. The promises were made to Abraham and his seed in Jesus Christ. They are spiritually fulfilled for all the elect of God. And brethren, when it says that Abraham's seed was going to be as numerous as the stars of heaven, let me tell you, when you get to heaven, it's described as a multitude that no man can number. That's the seed. It's the seed and the children of the Lord Jesus Christ. It's the children of Abraham. And how do they identify themselves? By believing the gospel of Jesus Christ. That shows them to be Abraham's seed and heirs according to the promise. We are the heirs. Can you imagine the glory of this verse to Gentiles sitting in the churches of Galatia who had had teachers that had come out of Jerusalem sitting in some of those pews when this epistle was read to them? As a Gentile, you already felt like you were a second-class citizen. That's why when the Apostle Paul would stand up in a synagogue, he would say, Men and brethren, children of the stock of Abraham and whosoever among you feareth God, addressing Jews and Gentiles. Right. Amen. And these teachers had come out of Jerusalem saying, Jesus Christ isn't enough by himself to save you. What do you think the Old Testament was written for? That Old Testament was written to get you justified. You've got to add circumcision and the law of Moses in order to be saved. And those poor Gentiles believed it because, after all, Jerusalem had been the place where God was worshipped. These men coming out of Jerusalem should know the truth. They are God's chosen people. But Paul had already warned Titus, don't you dare let Jewish fables be taught in any of the churches you're responsible for. Shut their mouths. And I'm using Bible terminology of Titus chapter 1. Right. Amen. And so this verse was glorious can you imagine one of our brothers standing up and reading this epistle in the church of Galatia to Gentiles as they heard the truth that the promises were made to Abraham and his seed, which meant Christ, and that it applied to Jews and Gentiles equally. Amen. That by faith, even Gentiles were the children of Abraham right. and his seed. So that all those blessings, because those were fantastic blessings, you name me another man on earth that had God appear to him face to face and speak to him, and give him promises like Abraham got. That's why God would tell Abraham, I am your reward your shield and your exceeding reward. I am your God. I'm going to give you a land. All the nations of the earth are going to be blessed through you Abraham. Your seed is going to possess the gates of their enemies. Your seed's going to be innumerable and bless all nations. Those were tremendous promises from the God of heaven to one man. And they're fulfilled in Jesus Christ. And so we are saved from so many errors. Now we've got a problem. And this is what I want you to appreciate this morning. And you've heard this so many times. But those of you who've heard it so many times, just get, stay grounded in it. There's others here that haven't heard it so many times this verse tells us very plainly that the old testament had better be worded a certain way right it says now to abraham and his seed were the promises made let's look at one of them genesis 12:7 there's 12 as i told you and we'll look at just a few genesis 12:7 this ought to get you angry Most Christians do not believe that there's a real war for the truth. That the truth is doing very well. That since Rick Warren's book is at the top of the New York Times best-selling list, the world is doing great. Because after all, what a a Christian book's at the top of the list. There is a war for truth, and there is a battle for the Bible. And we better hold on to what the Lord has shown us And we better hold on to the words of Scripture. They make fun of this King James Bible. It's 400 years old, and it takes all those new versions and crushes them. The Apostle Paul said in Galatians 3.16, in all versions, the promises were made to Abraham and his seed. A singular noun put for Jesus Christ and His people. Genesis chapter 12 and verse 7 is the first promise given to Abraham and his seed. And the Lord appeared unto Abram and said, Unto thy seed will I give this land, and there and he an altar unto the Lord who appeared unto him. Did Isaac get that land? No. Did Jacob get that land? No. Did Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob get heaven? Yes. Genesis twelve seven. Now I could pick any version; I've got a hundred at home, and I mean that. But I'm going to read. I'm going to read this one from the New King James Version, Genesis chapter twelve and verse seven. Genesis twelve seven. Then the Lord appeared to Abram and said, "To your descendants I will give this land." And there he built an altar to the Lord who had appeared to him. Now Paul had said in Galatians three sixteen the Old Testament had better say seed. The promises were made to Abraham and his seed. He didn't say seeds. He said seed as of one, which is Christ. But by altering the terminology of the Old Testament, then you end up with the blessings being natural, physical, carnal, national in the physical descendants of Abraham rather than the seed from Paul's argument. What? Listen. Do the men who have THDs after their names and are called Dr. So-and-so, can most of them read? Can most of them read? Do they know what Galatians 3.16 says? Do they sign off on these Bibles as they've been through enough review processes that they're good enough to now go to a printer? How in the world can a man sign off on a Bible where Paul says, The Old Testament better say the promises were to Abraham and his seed and change it to descendants. How can they do it? The same way that Pharaoh rode his horse down into the Red Sea. Their hearts are hardened because they have determined that they are going to sit in judgment on God's words and that they are smart enough to change them. Oh, we're not done yet because the very next verse has another problem in it for them, which they can't handle. But here in Galatians 3.16, God blinds them. They ride their horses right down to the Red Sea. Why did Pharaoh do that after ten plagues in the land of Egypt? Don't you think you would have been frightened a little bit that that water just might tumble down over you and drown you and your horses? But the Bible tells us why. God hardened his heart because He was going to get glory over him. And God, Listen, let me tell you what God says about seminary-trained theologians who sit in judgment on His Word. 1 Corinthians chapter 1 and 1 Corinthians chapter 3, he says it twice. Right. Where is the wisdom of this world? Amen. Hath not God made foolish the wisdom of this world? Amen. Where is the scribe? That's a man who deals in Bibles. Where is the scribe? Where is the disputer of this world? That's the textual criticism that's done in seminaries right. to sit in judgment on God's Word. Where are they? God mocks them with his rhetorical questions because he's turned them into foolishness. Right. Come over to Genesis chapter 22. Let me look at, it. let's look at another one. We don't have, we're not going to look at all 12. All 12 are found in a document that our webmaster put out yesterday afternoon at the top of our home page. Thank you, brother. Amen. Genesis chapter 22, verses 17 and 18. This is after This is after Abraham attempted to offer Isaac as a sacrifice. Let's read it in our King James Bibles. Well, let's get verse 16 so that we have the whole sentence or or most of it. God is speaking. By myself have I sworn, saith the Lord, for because thou hast done this thing and hast not withheld thy son, thine only son, that in blessing I will bless thee, and in multiplying I will multiply thy seed as the stars of the heaven, and as the sand which is upon the seashore. And thy seed shall possess the gate of his enemies. And in thy seed shall all the nations of the earth be blessed, because thou hast obeyed my voice. And who is that seed? It's the Lord Jesus Christ. All nations of the earth would be blessed by the Lord Jesus Christ. Let me read to you from the message. Now this is a hot one. This is Rick Warren's favorite. It's not really a Bible. They call it a Bible, but it's not really a Bible. It's a novel about the Bible. It's written by one man who just read the Bible and wrote down what he thought that it meant. Genesis chapter 22, and he didn't read enough of Paul. Let's read those same... I'm going to read those same verses to you, and you try to follow, although the wording is severely different. I swear... God's sure word, because you have gone through with this and have not refused to give me your son, your dear, dear son, I'll bless you. Oh, how I'll bless you. And I'll make sure that your children flourish like stars in the sky, like sand on the beaches, and your descendants will defeat their enemies. All nations on earth will find themselves blessed through your descendants because you obeyed me. And if you'll go to the document on the home page, all the Bibles do the same thing with this combination of words. Either descendants, or children, or offspring. Those are two of the twelve promises. Brethren, you have a Bible in your hands that you can trust. where the New Testament agrees with the Old Testament. And when Paul and the Holy Spirit are making an argument and they say the Old Testament says seed, you better be able to find seed back there. Such a Bible that changes it isn't really Scripture. It's it's, It's telling you itself that it's not Scripture. See, a very simple person can read the book of Galatians. They can come to verse 16 of chapter 3 and realize that Paul's argument is based on a word that better be in the Old Testament. Then a very simple person, all it takes is a couple of years in school to learn how to read, a very simple person can go back to Genesis. Wow, is that really true? Did God really make those promises to Abraham that way so that they're fulfilled in Jesus Christ in their mind? I'm talking about a third grader. So that those promises are mine, they go back to the Old Testament in the King James Bible. All the promises to Abraham contained in Genesis 12 through 40, 24 Say seed. But if they have a new Bible, it says descendants, and they're confused, and they close it and say, I guess I can't figure it out. And they're lost. All the Bibles have descendants, offspring, or children in those promises. Such a Bible isn't Scripture, for it makes Paul's and the Holy Spirit's argument a lie. Such a Bible isn't Scripture, for it contradicts itself. And, and Jesus said about the Bible, Scripture cannot be broken. Amen. John 10.35 Scripture cannot be broken. There cannot be disagreement. We just found one in their Bibles. Such a Bible replaces Paul's doctrine of salvation by grace with salvation by race. So that the benefits of justification, which is the subject of Galatians 3, are based on descendants rather than Jesus Christ. Such a Bible replaces Paul's doctrine of salvation with nationalism, by race. Such a Bible proves that modern editors are either very ignorant or maliciously profane. Such a Bible promotes Jewish fables that Paul was opposing 2,000 years ago. Such a Bible leads Americans to support the most anti-Christian government on earth. Such a Bible steals the good news and joyful sound of God's blessing on Gentiles. Such a Bible replaces the Lord Jesus Christ with Goldamier and Menachem Begin. Such a Bible relegates the kingdom and churches of Jesus Christ to a pitiful afterthought. Such a Bible starves saints by removing the every word of God they need to survive. Jesus said, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word of God. And they take away the every word of God that we need. Such a Bible exalts those people who claim to be Jews and worship in synagogues that Jesus said they're liars. Revelation 2, 9 and 3, 9. They are not the true Jews. Jews that say they are Jews and worship in synagogues are the synagogue of Satan. Revelation 2, 9 and 3, 9 in perfect agreement with Jesus Christ saying in John 8:44, Ye are of your father the devil. That national descent from Abraham, even if it could be proved by any one of them, doesn't mean a thing. It's gone. Jew and Gentile is one in Christ Jesus. And we are the true seed of Abraham in the sight of God by being Christ. Enough about verse 16. Back to Galatians chapter 3. That is a precious, precious doctrine and statement to Gentile Christians that the promises are fulfilled in Jesus Christ and they're ours. They're ours. I want that heavenly country, don't you? Do you want us to bury you in the Middle East and think you've arrived? I want a heavenly country. I want to be part of that multitude that no man can number that is out of every nation. Isn't that what God told Abraham? Every nation of the earth will be blessed in you. If every nation of the earth is going to be blessed because of the way they treat the Jews, then what about the Arab nations? But I want to tell you something about the Arab nations. When we get to heaven, there's going to be some Arabs there, saved by the grace of God through Jesus Christ. Out of every nation. Tribe, tongue, and people. Praise the Lord. Thank you, Lord, for Galatians 3.16. Now I'm going to read verse 15 and then verse 17. I'm not trying to corrupt your Bibles. Verse 16 was sort of an aside. If I read 15 and 17, you're going to see that they're closely connected brethren i speak after the manner of men though it be but a man's covenant yet if it be confirmed no man disannuleth or addeth thereto and this i say that the covenant that was confirmed before of god in christ the law which was 430 years after cannot disannul that it should make the promise of none effect Here's what the apostles arguing in verse 15. Paul said, let me try a natural argument to help you. If men make a covenant, if they sign a contract. It means after the rescission period, they can't come back and undo it. You know, Mary's hoping that a contract between her and the buyers of her house on Kent Island is going to stand and it's going to stand. Because once it's confirmed, and there were attorneys there confirming it, it's, it's a standing contract. Do you know, the, how long is the period of rescission in the state of South Carolina? Three days. You have three days if you feel that you signed something a little too fast, you can go back and undo it. But she's past that, and I don't know what it is up there. But verse 15, Paul is saying, let me argue after the manner of men. Let me just remind you of something. All of you know that when you do a contract with some other man and it's agreed upon, the terms are settled, nobody can add to that covenant later and they can't disannul it. It's established. And so verse 17 is Paul arguing that's the same way it is with God. God made covenant promises to Abraham and they were confirmed. God swore with an oath. Did He swear with an oath? Yes, He did. chapter 22 and Hebrews 6 tells us all about it. Did he come down and appear in a vision to Abraham over it? Did he give Abraham the sign of circumcision, which was a token of that covenant? Was it confirmed and ratified by numerous different appearances of God to Abraham? It was. It was settled. So Paul's arguing for these Gentiles in Galatia, God made covenant promises to Abraham that are settled, that cannot be altered or disannulled or have anything added to them. See, the Jewish teachers coming out of Jerusalem were wanting to add to the promises to Abraham. They were wanting to add to circumcision and keeping Moses' law. So Paul is saying that doesn't even even work in the world. That doesn't even work between men. Once they have a contract, it's settled. And God made a covenant, a contract, a promise to perform with Abraham And the law of Moses was 430 years later. How in the world could something 430 years later disannul that first covenant of promise that God made with Abraham or add anything to it? This is powerful language. This is chosen by the Holy Spirit and by the Apostle Paul to save these Galatians from believing those false teachers out of Jerusalem. Listen, brethren. You understand that once a contract is established, it can't be added to. You can't put more terms on it. These teachers that are coming and trying to put Moses' law on it, they're 430 years too late. And that's a comfort to all of God's people. Now in verse 17, And this I say that the covenant that was confirmed before of God in Christ, the reason we have verse 16 is to explain those two little words there in Christ. See, now we know where the covenant promised to Abraham is found because we have verse 16. But the real argument is verses 15 and 17 together. That covenant was confirmed before of God in Christ to Abraham. And when did God make that covenant to Abraham? In Genesis chapter 12 and verse 4, when He called Abraham out of Haran to come into the land of Canaan, is when He said to him, that in all nations of the earth, in thee shall all nations of the earth be blessed. That event, Genesis 12, 4, was 430 years before Moses came down from Mount Sinai, holding those tables of stone and the covenant that God made with Israel. There's 430 years between Abraham in Genesis twelve four and Moses on Mount Sinai in Exodus 19 and 20. Are you with me? We went over this last Sunday, but twice won't hurt you. They won't hurt you at all. Holding your finger at Galatians chapter 3, go back to Exodus chapter 12. We did this last Sunday, but I want to do it again. I want you to appreciate that God loves you so much, He sent you His infallible Word, and we are going to take apart the new versions again in the very next verse. Do you understand that in Galatians chapter 3, Paul is arguing against the law of Moses? Do you know that? That's the context of the whole chapter. Those false teachers were trying to add the law of Moses to Jesus Christ's finished work. And so in Galatians 3.17, the Apostle Paul tells us by the Holy Spirit, there is 430 years from when the promise was made to Abraham... So when Moses gave the law to Israel on Mount Sinai, there's 430 year gap, not a gap, a time period. What happened during those years? Let me tell you. The Bible tells us how old Abraham was when God made that covenant with him. How old was he? Seventy five. It tells us that immediately in the context of Genesis chapter 12. He was seventy five. How old was he when Isaac was born? He was a hundred. So we have 25 years that expired in Abraham's life. How old was Isaac when Jacob was born? Sixty. How old was Jacob when he went down into Egypt? One thirty. The Bible tells us each one of these. We have 25 of Abraham being a sojourner wandering around Canaan. We have 60 more of Isaac being a sojourner wandering around Canaan. We have 130 of Jacob being a sojourner wandering around Canaan before he went down into Egypt where he met Joseph and died. 130 plus 60 plus 25 is 215. For 215 years, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob wandered around in Canaan as sojourners. Then they went down into Egypt where they were sojourners for another 215 years before they came out to fulfill the 430 years. Because in the very year they came out, only a couple of months after they came out, God gave the law on Mount Sinai. So there's the 430 years from Abraham to Moses. 215 spent by Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob wandering around Canaan as strangers and pilgrims in the earth. 215 of them being in Egypt. Okay, let's look at Exodus 12.40. Exodus 12.40. Now this is sort of an aside, but I want you to love your Bibles and trust your Bibles and believe every word of them. Exodus 12.40. Now the sojourning of the children of Israel who dwelt in Egypt was 430 years. That little clause, who dwelt in Egypt, has no relationship at all to the 430. That's the English language. That is a non-restrictive clause. That's why it's got commas around it. You could put parentheses around it. it. Doesn't matter which form of punctuation you use because both of them are telling you who dwelt in Egypt has nothing to do with the 430 years. The 430 years is modifying something else in the sentence. Exodus 12:40. Now, the sojourning of the children of Israel was 430 years. That is how the sentence is to be understood and you're being given additional information about Israel that they did dwell in Egypt. Now see, we I've just given you the facts. Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob wandered around for 215, and then they spent 215 in Egypt for the total of 430 that the New Testament gives us as defining the starting point and the end point. God's promise to Abraham, I'm doing it backward to you, God's promise to Abraham And God giving the law to Moses was 430 years. Now let me read to you from the esteemed NIV. Exodus chapter 12 and verse 40. You love your Bibles. Children, you defend the King James Bibles with your lives. This is garbage. It's already been wrong from verse 16 by changing it to offspring, children, and descendants in the promises to Abraham. Now watch this. You look at your Bibles, Exodus 12.40, and I'm going to read to you the NIV, Exodus 12.40. Now the length of time the Israelite people lived in Egypt was 430 years. Now the length of time that the children of Israel or the Israelite people lived in Egypt was 430 years. How did they get that? They took out the word sojourning and they dropped the commas. They took out the word sojourning and they dropped the commas. Israel could not have been in Egypt 430 years by any way, shape, or form because Paul said, from the promise to Abraham, from the promise to Abraham, let's get it here from left to right, from the promise to Abraham to God giving the law to Moses on Mount Sinai was 430 years and you know that the children of Israel didn't go down to Egypt until long after Abraham, Isaac, and 130 years of Jacob's life. You say it's a minor point. Listen, do men that are called doctor so-and-so and and have THDs and PHDs and doctors of literature after their name, do they know how to read? If they know how to read, how can they do Galatians 3.17 in the New Testament and then go to the Old Testament and contradict it? Love your Bibles. Love your Bibles, read your Bibles, trust your Bibles. 400 years ago, God providentially preserved the Scriptures that He had given through the King James translation. The NIV, the New American Standard Version, the message, all of them change Exodus 12.40. The New King James Version, because it's really just plagiarizing the King James Version, is okay in Exodus 12.40, though it does drop the commas, If you know how to read a non-restrictive clause, you can still get through that verse. But they did drop the commas. But I'm reading all these other popular versions contradict Galatians 3.17. It's a shame in one respect that we have to do this. It's a blessing that we do it. I want you to consider it a blessing because a third grader could read Galatians 3.17 and see the 430. And if he went back and read the history of Israel, he would know that from Abraham to Moses, there couldn't be 430 just in Egypt because there was all that time Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob were wandering around in tents in the land of Canaan. What this is telling us is that without going to the Hebrew or without going to the Greek, God has opened our eyes to know that the King James Bible is true. And these other Bibles are false. You don't need to know a thing about manuscript evidence. You don't need to know a thing about those two dead languages. You've got a living language called English, and God's preserved His Word, and all the modern Bibles of the last 50 years are trying to overthrow it. And look at the fruit they have. American Christianity is tanking because they're not following the words of the living God and trembling before them. Galatians chapter 3. Galatians chapter 3. Paul's reasoning is this. You Galatians, don't listen to anybody that's trying to add something on to the promises given to Abraham. Those promises given to Abraham are in Christ and they are yours. Because if you're of faith, then you're Abraham's children and heirs according to the promise. The promises made to Abraham were made when he came out of Haran into the land of Canaan. And that was 430 years in front of Moses giving the law to Israel, don't let anyone try to add something from Moses to the promises to Abraham, because there is no rescission period of four hundred and thirty years. That's his argument of verses fifteen and seventeen. We thank the Lord for the historical confirmation of what we have in Exodus twelve forty. Verse eighteen for if the inheritance be of the law, it is no more of promise. But God gave it to Abraham by promise. The inheritance is the land, and the land is heaven. And if the land, or heaven, was obtained by the law, then it couldn't have been given by promise, because the law and the promise are two opposites. The promise, the the, the law is, I'll offer it to you as long as you fulfill these conditions. But God gave it to Abraham with no condition at all. It was just a flat-out covenant promise. I'm going to give you heaven. That's what verse 18 is reasoning for these Galatian saints. If the inheritance be of the law, it is no more of promise because promise and law are contradictory to each other. They are mutually exclusive terms. They exclude each other just like grace and works exclude each other. So does law and promise because a promise is I'm going to perform. Law is you better perform. And I love the difference there. I want God performing for me, not God depending upon me performing. I can't depend upon me performing. But He promises to perform. So it's by promise. He promised eternal life before the world began. Titus 1-2 Praise His glorious name. And He worked out all the details and the conditions for it. Because Jesus Christ, and by His obedience, made me righteous to stand in the sight of God. Verse 18. Paul's just... Arguing from the definition of terms and the definition of these two covenants. It can't be by the law. Inheritance can't be by the law because God gave gave the land, meaning heaven, to Abraham by a promise. So you can't take a promise and then add to it conditions. God gave it to Abraham by promise. He's taken them back past Moses all the way back to Abraham. Verse 19 What's going to happen? If a Jewish teacher is going to stand up and try to interrupt the reading of this epistle, a Jewish teacher is going to stand up and say, well, then what's the purpose of the law? If the law wasn't to justify men, why did God even give it? If there isn't value in the law to get us into heaven, then why did God give it? That's the argument. The Apostle Paul of the Holy Spirit already knows what's coming. And so he asks the question himself. And when you're reasoning with people, and when you're studying a subject... If you're wise, you're going to already answer all their objections. Because that's part of our job, is to answer the objections before they're even raised and to know them. That's thorough study of a Bible subject. Not only determining what you believe, it says, but answering all the objections that can be raised against it by an opponent. That's a whole other level of study. It takes a little knowledge to believe something, some more knowledge to teach something, but a whole lot of knowledge to defend it. Because then you've got to handle someone else's objections based on their study. Paul heads them off. Verse 19, Wherefore then serveth the law? It was added because of transgressions, till the seed should come to whom the promise was made. And it was ordained by angels in the hand of a mediator. Let's deal with the first half part of this verse. The Jewish objection would be, well, then what purpose does the law have? If the law of Moses isn't to get us justified into heaven, what in the world is it for? Paul says, it was added. The real covenant is by promise. The real covenant is in Abraham. Salvation and the everlasting covenant is in Abraham because it's by promise. But it was added for a reason, because of transgressions. We've had read to you in your hearing this morning. Romans chapter 7 that told us that the law was to show sin to be exceeding sinful so that men who thought they were righteous would be condemned by it. That's the purpose of the law. You had read to you by another brother, 1 Timothy chapter 1, where Paul said the law is good if a man uses it lawfully. But the law isn't for a righteous man. The law is to curb violent wickedness like slayers of mothers and slayers of fathers and sodomites and other perverts. The law was to put a control upon men to keep them from excessive wickedness. That's 1 Timothy chapter 1. It's Galatians chapter 3 and verse 19. So there's two main purposes. God added the law to curb the wicked inclinations of men. To control them. And by that control and those rules, to show them to be exceeding sinful. You know, the Apostle Paul there in 1 Timothy chapter 1 he said there's, there's teachers going around pretending they understand the purpose of the law and all their pre- their preaching is nothing but vain jangling because they don't even understand what they affirm about the law. They don't even know its purpose. The law wasn't for a righteous man. It's not for men to get to heaven. It's not the standard of living because a righteous man is going to believe by pure faith and charity out of a pure heart and obey God. He doesn't need rules about kidnapping, about sodomy, and about killing your parents. Those are national laws to keep a nation under control. And then the second reason is to show sin to be exceeding sinful. Paul said, I was alive once without the law. I thought I was good enough to stand before God. But then the commandment came, thou shalt not covet. Oh, and when I understood thou shalt not covet, And I realized that meant to the thoughts of my heart and my head, I realized that I was a great sinner. Sin revived and I died. The law killed me. That's the other reason the law was given. It was added because of transgressions till the seed should come. I want to give you one more verse that wasn't read to you this morning. It's Romans chapter 5. Romans chapter 5. God wants us to know that we're sinners so that we appreciate the salvation of Jesus Christ. God wanted His people to be under the control of a set of laws that would keep them from the excessive wickedness of all the nations around them. Remember Leviticus 18, Leviticus 20, and chapters that describe the wickedness of the nations of Canaan, where God said if you don't go in and wipe them out, the land itself will spew them out. And so He gave a law that curbed all that. And God said of His own law, all the nations of the earth are going to look at the code of laws of the the Israelite nation and know that there is a God very close to them because He has saved them from all the perversity of the nations without that law. Look at America. We're rushing back toward such wickedness that this land should spew us out of it. Killing babies while they're still in the womb by the most horrific methods. Same-sex marriages. Romans chapter 5, verse 20. We know verse 19, don't we? For as by one man's disobedience many were made sinners, that's Adam. So by the obedience of one shall many be made righteous. That's the seed of Abraham. There's the covenant of promise. There's eternal life by God's promise and God's performance. But look at the next verse. Moreover, the law entered, that the offense might abound. But where sin abounded, grace did much more abound. That as sin hath reigned unto death, even so might grace reign through righteousness unto eternal life by Jesus Christ our Lord. There's why we have the law. We have the law to curb the natural appetites of men. We have the law to reveal the exceeding sinfulness of men, so that they would appreciate the Lord Jesus Christ. The law entered. God gave the law, according to Romans 5.20, that the offense might abound. That sin might be shown in all of its horrible control over all of us that would leave us condemned to where we would need a Savior. Back to Galatians 3 and verse 19. The Jews would say, "Why? Wherefore then serveth the law? If it's not for justification, what purpose is it? for condemnation. The law was never made to justify. The law was made to condemn. Because when you measured yourself with the law, you came up so short, it was terrible. It was added because of transgressions till the seed should come to whom the promise was made. Who is that seed should come to whom the promises were made? Jesus Christ. The seed of verse 16. So the law was for 1,500 years from Moses until Jesus Christ. Does that, the Bible tell us that? The, Moses, the, the law came by Moses, but grace and truth came by Jesus Christ. Right. The law and the prophets were until John the Baptist. Since that time the kingdom of God is preached, and every man presseth into it. Until Jesus Christ, men were kept up under the law. Now it says, Paul's going to run a short argument here in the last part of verse 19 and verse 20. In verses 21 through 25 he's going to return to his argument of the first part of verse 19 about what what purpose does the law have but for a short little section he runs another little rabbit trail he's constantly putting down the law of Moses it's very much like the book of Hebrews when you go into like Hebrews chapter 7 which some of us are memorizing right now and you see all the arguments that Paul uses to prove that the priesthood of Jesus Christ is superior to the Levitical priesthood, you understand how he how he works by the Spirit. He just points out a large number of arguments proving that you're wrong to put confidence in the Levitical priesthood. Here is just another side argument proving that the law is inferior. Look at it. In the last part of verse 19, Paul adds, "...and it was ordained by angels in the hand of a mediator." Now that is not directly answering the question. He has asked a rhetorical question that he knows Jews would ask. What's the purpose of the law? He answers it. It was added because of transgressions until the seed should come. And when we get to verse 21 through 25, he's going to explain that law is a schoolmaster to bring us to Christ. So these last few words of 19 and verse 20 are a little separate argument. And here it is. He tacks this on while he's answering, you know, wherefore then serveth the law? Are you trying to tell me the law isn't very important? Are you trying to tell me the law isn't for justification? And Paul says, no, it was added because of transgressions till the scene should come. All it is is a schoolmaster to lead us to Christ. But he tacks this on as well. And it was ordained by angels in the hand of a mediator. Now a mediator is not a mediator of one, but God is one. verse 20 is considered to be one of the hardest verses in the New Testament. But if verse 20 is understood in light of chapter 3, context, I don't think it's all that difficult. And I'm just going to go right with the words. A mediator is not a mediator of one. What does a mediator operate for? What's his role? He is a go-between between two parties. So how many partners are there in total? Three. Three. There's a mediator between two opposing parties that are at conflict with each other which can't deal with each other. Are you, are you with me about a mediator? Isn't that what it's for? Isn't he, In our society, don't we call it arbitration? When you've got two people that are angry at each other and they need an arbiter between them that will listen to the arguments from both sides and come up with a solution that will satisfy and pacify both sides. Verse 20 is very simple. And you would say it's so simple certainly the point's got to be deeper. No, it doesn't. It doesn't have to be any deeper than Hebrews 7.7 if you want to go try that one on. There's other points in the Bible where Paul just uses very simple reasoning. Why does he have verse 15 here? Brethren, I speak after the manner of men. Once you sign a contract, that contract stands. No one can add to it and no one can disannul it. Now, that's pretty simple, isn't it? But that's the kind of reasoning Paul uses. The Bible isn't made for seminary theologians. The Bible's made for the people of God. And they can read verse 20 and understand, now a mediator isn't a mediator of one, but God is one. If there's a mediator involved, then there's two parties that are angry at each other. Verse 19, and it was ordained by angels in the hand of a mediator. Paul tacks on a little P.S. about their law. They want to get so excited about that law, Paul says, How did you even get that law? Did Moses have to go up on Mount Sinai and get that law? Uh, Just follow with me because we need to hurry. Follow with me. Let's just reason through what Paul is saying here to these Galatians that were being bewitched by the Jews out of Jerusalem. How did you get that law that you're asking about? Did you get it in the hands of a mediator? Why did you need a mediator? Let me tell you why they needed a mediator. Because when God came down on Mount Sinai to give the law, He didn't come down all friendly-like. Will you let me use some language like that about the God of heaven? He did not come down all friendly-like. What was Mount Sinai doing? Was it popping rose bushes at the presence of the Lord? Or was it all shaking together and smoke and fire was coming out of it? And they, and they had to put one of those banked lines, cords around the whole base of the mountain And if anybody were to touch that mountain or get near it, even if it was a beast, it was to be thrust through with darts. Does that sound like a friendly meeting with God? It was ordained in the hands of a mediator and it was given by angels. The New Testament tells us the law came by angels. God didn't come down any personal way. He sent angels to write in those tables of stone and give it to Moses. Do you know what the Bible even tells us about Moses? In Hebrews chapter 12? Was Moses excited to go up Mount Sinai? No. He exceedingly feared and quaked. Right. Those exceedingly feared and quaked. The people said, Don't let God speak to us. I never hear Abraham saying anything like that. I hear Abraham saying, Lord, you just promised me a son, but you know, I'm an old man now and Sarah's, Sarah's old. Do, do you mean Ishmael over here? Let Ishmael live before the Lord. They're talking. They're talking back and forth. God to man. God says, let's go ahead and tell Abraham what we're about to do. God says, I'm going to burn up Sodom. Oh, Lord, shall not, the judge of, shall not the judge of all the earth do right? If there's 50 righteous souls in that city, are you going to burn it up? And there's Abraham and God talking back and forth, dickering like the price of a car. If I find 40, Lord, oh, I've, gone, I've opened my mouth now to you, Lord, and asked for 40, and you've agreed... Can I try 30 if there's only 30 in Sodom? Do you understand the huge difference? Yes. Right. They want to bring up their covenant. They want to bring up the law. Paul adds in this little argument, your law was given by angels because God was so angry with you and the whole mountain was shaking and on fire and Moses himself didn't want to go up there because God was so far from you and so distant and so angry, and was giving a list of commandments that was going to crush every single one of you, there was nothing warm or friendly about it. You had to have a mediator for your covenant, but God spoke personally to Abraham. I think the promise is better, is what Paul, Paul's argument is. A mediator is not a mediator of one. A mediator is come between two parties that don't like each other. And there was God in his angry and, anger and fury putting laws down for them to keep. And there were they in their fear and guilt not wanting to deal with God saying, don't you speak to us. Let Moses come up and speak to us. Now a mediator is not a mediator of one, but God is one. God is one. He didn't need a mediator to talk to Abraham. He gave it by promise. Verse 21, back to Paul's main line of thinking of the first half of verse 19. Is the law then against the promises of God? Paul, are you trying to say there's a contradiction between the promises to Abraham and the law given to Moses? God forbid! They're not contradicting each other. They, sub- they serve each other. For if there had been a law given which could have given life, verily righteousness should have been by the law. No, they're not against each other. If God had given a, light, a, a law that was designed to justify men, life would have been Or salvation would have been by keeping the law. But God did not give a law that was intended to justify men. They're not against each other. The law had a different purpose than that. Verse 22. All verse 21 is saying the purpose of the law was not to justify men. And it's not contradictory to the promises given to Abraham. It serves the promises to Abraham by making people appreciate those promises. Verse 22. But the Scripture... And here's another word put as a metonym for the law. But the Scripture hath concluded all under sin, that the promise by faith of Jesus Christ might be given to them that believe. The promise of heaven, the promise of a great seed, the promise of defeating all enemies, was through the performance, the faithfulness of the Lord Jesus Christ, and it's given to those that line themselves up with Abraham by being believers. That's verse 22. Verse 23, but before faith came, before faith came, we were kept under the law. If faith is coming after the law, when did faith come? But before faith came, we were kept under Jesus Christ. Here's the this is why you've got to be careful with the Bible. Here's the word faith used as a metonym as and and, and it's replacing Jesus Christ and the gospel of Jesus Christ and the religious system of Jesus Christ, but it's just called by the one word, faith. Before faith came. You mean there was no faith in the world before Jesus Christ arrived? I find Abel full of faith in Hebrews chapter 11, verse 4, and that's all the way back in Genesis verse 4. I mean, chapter 4. When it says, before faith came, it means the object of faith. Before Jesus Christ came, the One that would fulfill all the promises, the One upon which we would believe, Before that came, we were kept under the law. Before John the Baptist burst on the scene with the Lord Jesus Christ and His his apostles, we were kept under the law. As soon as they arrived, the law went away. For 40 years it ran side by side, but then it disappeared. Before faith came, before Jesus Christ came in the gospel of salvation by grace alone, we were kept under the law, shut up under the faith, which should afterwards be revealed. The gospel of Jesus Christ that was coming. Verse 24, Wherefore, the law was our schoolmaster to bring us unto Christ that we might be justified by faith. The law was given for 1,500 years to teach men that they could by no means keep a conditional covenant to get salvation. And so they would be looking for a seed, the seed of the woman, the seed of Abraham, that would come and save them by his performance. And they would lay hold of that by faith. The law was a schoolmaster, a teacher in the elementary grades teaching you there's something great coming that you need. And they needed it because they couldn't keep the law. But after that faith has come, we are no longer under a schoolmaster. Now that Jesus Christ is here with His gospel of free salvation and justification through His work, we don't need the law. The law no longer has a purpose because Christ is here. It's gone. The law and the prophets were until John. Since that time, the kingdom of heaven is preached, and every man presseth into it. Can we still benefit from things of the law? The the same man that wrote this also wrote in 1 Corinthians chapter 9, The law saith, Thou shalt not muzzle the ox that treadeth out the corn. Does, Does Moses write this for the sake of oxen? or does He say it all together for our sakes? See, there's principles that are drawn from the law, but the law as a system of religion, as a ceremonial religion, as how we worship God, as as the means of trying to save ourselves in their eyes, all of that's gone. The law was a schoolmaster to make us appreciate Christ. After that, the religion of Jesus Christ has come, verse 25, we're no longer under a schoolmaster. For ye are all the children of God by faith in Christ Jesus. How do you know you're a child of God? By faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. If you have faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, it's proof that you're born again. For he that believeth that Jesus is the Christ is born of God. John chapter 1, But as many as received Him, to them gave He power to become the sons of God, even to them that believe on His name, which were born. Not of blood. No Jewish connection there nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. You lay claim to being a son of God by faith only. There's no performance. It's just the evidence of being a child of God, and God made you a child by covenant promise. Verse 26, For ye are all the children of God by faith in Christ Jesus. Matthew chapter 5 would say, You're all the children of God by loving your enemies. 2 Corinthians chapter 6 would say you're all the children of God and God will be your Father by coming out from among them and being being separate and touching not the unclean thing. We look at all those passages in the very same way. They're all evidences of being a child of God and how we lay claim to a practical relationship of a father to a son and a son to a father. Verse 27, For as many of you as have been baptized into Christ have put on Christ. If you're going to run faith as a condition for the promises of God, then you better run baptism as a condition for the promises of God because it's connected to it in verse 27. You know what this passage is also telling us? There really isn't such a thing as an unbaptized believer. Even though you believe, you still haven't put on Christ until you're baptized. When you're baptized, we are buried in the water to show our connection and our agreement and our belief. And our purpose to live according to His burial and His resurrection. Remember, there's three pictures in every baptism. A picture of Jesus Christ being buried and rising again for our sins. A picture of us burying our old man and rising to walk in newness of life. And a picture of our bodies being buried. They will come out of the grave one day. Three glorious pictures in baptism. Baptism is how we give God the answer of our good conscience. How did Abraham give his? He took Isaac up onto an altar. All we have to do is enter the waters of baptism sincerely, and it's how we lay hold of Christ. Luke chapter 7, verses 28 and 29, Jesus condemned the scribes and the Pharisees because it says they rejected the baptism of John. But He said the publicans and the harlots came, and they justified God being baptized with the baptism of John. When you are baptized, you justify God. You declare God to be righteous and just in all that He lays in claims upon you. And all that He has said that He will do, you justify Him. Baptism is very important. And it's how we take on Christ practically and identify ourselves with Jesus Christ. Most of the world will not do that. The only ones that will do this are the elect of God, whom God has chosen, redeemed by Christ, Regenerated by the power of the Holy Spirit and sent them the gospel. They hear the joyful sound. They believe it. Verse twenty-six. They get baptized into it. Verse twenty-seven. Verse twenty-eight. You Galatian Gentiles, there is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither bond nor free. There is neither male nor female, for ye are all one in Christ Jesus. There is no racial distinction. There is no economic distinction. There is no sexual distinction. When it comes to justification and salvation in Christ Jesus, you are all one in Him. And if ye be Christ, if you've believed Him, and if you've been baptized in His name, if ye be Christ, then are ye Abraham's seed and heirs according to the promise. What is the inheritance? Heaven. How do you line up with Abraham so that you make, so that you know that you're going to Abraham's bosom when you die? by faith and baptism. Oh yes. Galatians 3:26 and 27 is as tough for most baptists as Mark 16:16. 16, 16. He that believeth and is baptized shall be saved, but it's talking about getting the inheritance, not about getting born again. And right here it's talking about getting the inheritance because this is how we identify ourselves with the seed of Abraham, the Lord Jesus Christ. 6,500 years ago, about God drowned the earth with a flood. But Noah found grace in the eyes of the Lord, and eight souls were saved. A few hundred years after that, there was a man named Abram living in Ur of the Chaldeans. And he found grace in the eyes of the Lord, and God called Abram out of that country. I'm talking about world history right now, world history that matters. Alexander, Exerxes, and all those guys, they don't matter. They don't matter compared to this event. Right. God called Abram to come out of Ur of the Chaldeans. He came to Herod. His father died. He brought him on into the land of Canaan. And there he wandered for many years. But God made glorious promises to him of an innumerable seed, defeating his enemies, of a, of a land for a perpetual inheritance, and that all nations of the earth would be blessed in him. There is a secret society in this earth. And it's secret to the world, but it's not secret to us. That secret society are the children of Abraham. And they are the ones by faith who believe the promises of God and who have laid hold of Jesus Christ and run to Him for their only hope of salvation and who have been baptized in His name as a public declaration to God that God is just and that Jesus Christ is a sufficient Savior. Baptism is a wonderful thing. It's how we lay hold of Christ and show ourselves the true seed of Abraham. May Jesus Christ be praised. We are a secret society in the earth, the children of Abraham. The world doesn't recognize us. They all look to the Middle East for the children of Abraham. We are the children of Abraham by faith in Christ Jesus. May Jesus Christ be praised.